You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of CRST, the podcast. In this episode, we're diving into presbyopia correction from drops to devices. I'm Kathy McCabe, Chief Medical Editor of CRST, and I'm joined by five individuals from across the United States who come to the table with different perspectives and practice patterns on presbyopia correction. My comrades for this discussion include Brian Schaefer, Mitch Schultz, Stephen Slade, Audrey Tally Rostov, and Dagny Zhu. All of us on the panel have experience with a variety of presbyopia correction methods, but I'm sure that our preferred treatments and thoughts on patient selection all vary a bit. Let's jump right in by talking about the newest presbyopia treatment on the block, and that is pharmacologic agents. Right now, the only available presbyopia drop is Vuity, but others are on the way. So let's just start it off by saying, I actually always like to start a presbyopia discussion by first finding out who on the panel is presbyopic. (laughs) Anybody willing to admit it? (laughs) Oh, come on. I'm the only one. You are not. No, first let me say, as a, as a revelation, I am fully 100% in the depths of presbyopia. So I'll, I'll kick yeah. it off, Steve, with that admission. <clears throat> I'm also fully enjoying my presbyopia to the max. <laughs> are you enjoying or enduring? That's what I wonder. <laughs> Mostly enduring. <laughs> All right. So, so the three of us, so this is good because we have the three who are just, you know, really kind of organically and uh, very emotionally, maybe even understanding the struggles that our patients have. And then we've got our two younger, very enthusiastic, yet very experienced docs here who are going to tell us, you know, how they approach it from their point of view with their patients, knowing that this is going to happen to you too. It will, it's on the, you know, it's on the horizon for you as well, maybe far on the horizon, but it's there. So anybody here already prescribing Vuity? Who's already had patients that they've prescribed or maybe even experienced it themselves? Well, okay, I, um, I, I have prescribed it. We have prescribed it from the office. I use Monovision, which I think is a wonderful uh, tool for presbyopia and I don't even own glasses readers at all. So I have not used it myself, but I have uh, experimented on my wife with it. So, um, yeah, we've, we've become familiar with it. And uh, how about you, um, Audrey? Have you used it, I, prescribed it? I'm, I'm with Steve. I also do monovision, and I mostly like it. I actually, for operating, I put on glasses, but uh, mostly I, I, I'm okay with my monovision. Um, I have tried Vuity on my husband, so I guess we are in the... <laughs> I'll be the trifecta here because I also use some um, a combination of mini monovision and multifocal contact lenses, and I have tried it on my spouse as well. <laughs> you know, they all deserved it. They deserve it. They do. All the best. I was just saying, my husband, uh, his brain can't do monovision. It might be a multitasking thing too, but he can't do monovision, and so we've been experimenting with a little bit of, of viewity. And what was his experience with it? He said that it stung when he put it in. Uh, and I, I don't know if he thought it made a big difference. I thought he made, it made somewhat of a difference, I would say. And so I would call it a 
I wouldn't call it a, you know, a huge success, but I'd call it maybe a, a mild success. Mm-hmm. And Steve, your, your wife as well? She uh, liked it okay, but the same thing, it stings and it's, it's temporary. So you kind of ride it up and then you ride it down as it fades away. So not a complete success, no. I'm going to chime in here, and it's it's. Uh, thank you, Kathy, for inviting all of us here tonight uh, to discuss this. It's a you know it's a great topic. Um, with regards to beauty, yeah, I actually have prescribed it, and um, I prescribe it on a weekly basis uh, for patients. Um, I've found it to you know we def- there definitely is a pool of patients that are interested in not wanting to wear reading glasses. Um, especially some of the younger presbyopes that aren't used to it and just don't like putting them on. Um, and it's, you know, and I think if you choose the right patients, uh, you can have happy patients is the bottom line. Yeah. So have you, have you yourself, I'm not trying to imply that you're presbyopic, uh, but myself, I am. And, uh, have you tried it on yourself? Uh, I actually have. And I, what I'm going to say is I don't use it on a daily basis. Um, I had LASIK. It's kind of hard to believe that it is now ooh, 26 years ago. Um, so that will tell a little bit about my age. Um, and, you know, I, and with my LASIK, I have had a little bit of regression. So I have some uncorrected uh, astigmatism, a little bit of myopia. So on a day-to-day basis, I don't actually need the drops every day. I can actually function in the office without glasses. However, um, when I get into situations where there are where there's low light and um, difficulty in seeing printed, you know, things like you know menus, um, even looking at books or you know true printed objects where I can't just take a screen and zoom and pull it you know wider and and brighter, um, I definitely will put uh, viewity in my eyes. So I found it helps me in a couple different ways. So. Number one, um, being post-refractive and having a little bit of residual astigmatism, the the pupil constriction effect of the viewity or the pupil management effect of the viewity actually helps to eliminate some of my astigmatism. So for night driving, it actually kind of helps me. I find that I actually do see a little bit clearer at distance as well as at near um, just from the the, um, con- control of the pupil effect where we're getting to, a, you know, I'm going to say for me, it's probably, if I look in the mirror, it's kind of like a two millimeter, somewhere between two and three millimeter pupil size, um, which really does help to eliminate some of the aberrations from that. But I actually have a found even at this, you know, I'm 56 now. Um, and I do find that it does help with my near vision. Um, I'm able to function for probably anywhere from four to five hours. I would say without glasses um, to pretty much see every size print uh, with that. Yeah. Okay. So Dagny and Brian, you, I'm sure, you know, you may have had experience with patients, maybe family members yourselves um, and beauty. And do you have any pearls as far as prescribing or maybe patient selection or feedback you've heard from patients? Let's start with Dagny. So I'm fortunate to work in a fairly busy refractive practice where I have patients coming in every day asking to be glasses free. And so I probably see five to 10 good candidates for viewity a week. Uh, They're they're early presbyopes and they're not ready for surgery. And I personally don't 
feel comfortable doing a lens exchange in an emetrope when their lens is still functioning, partially at least. Um, and a lot of them don't tolerate uh, monovision because they've had perfect vision all their lives. And so those are the patients that I've tried beauty in. And I have to say that you know, I, I get like a variable response. For some patients, you don't see any improvement, but then uh, quite a few, you get really surprised. So I've, I've dropped them in the chair uh, and 15 minutes later, I'll, I'll recheck their near vision. And so I've seen patients go from, you know, even J10 to J1 in 15 minutes. And I've been pretty surprised. Uh, but typically I find that it works best in patients who are on the younger side in their early forties, they're really mild presbyopes, maybe J3, and it gets them to a sharper J1, sometimes even J1 plus. And so those are the patients that I typically aim for. Although occasionally you will get the older patient who has a remarkable response, but pretty much I don't really use age as a, as a marker. I, I use lens function. So if they're still, if they still have partial accommodation with their distance correction, they can get to J3 around there. I feel like beauty might work well. And so I'm more motivated to try it in those patients. And Brian, anything different that you're doing with your patients? The biggest thing that I'm doing with my patients is having a really hard time figuring out how to use Presby drops. And part of this is completely my fault because there's a couple things I'm passionate about. And one of those is getting people out of glasses. And the other thing is getting people off of eye drops. So Presby drops are kind of the perfectly opposite confluent interest to me, but it does seem to have its place. And as a ophthalmologist who's seeing patients and seeing surgical evaluations, I'm having a hard time really figuring out how to talk to the patients about it. We know that the patients that do best give it a good two week trial before deciding if they like it or not. It's almost like getting a new pair of glasses. You have to give the patient time to adjust to those glasses. The same thing is the case with pilocarpy. And we saw it with old glaucoma patients and we're seeing it again with Beauty where the first two weeks they say what, what Stephen Audrey said, it, it stings. Some patients are saying they get a little bit of dimness. And I, one of my practice administrators who tried it on herself, she, she kind of described that sensation you get if you get off of a cruise ship and you still feel like you're on the water. Mm -hmm. And those two weeks are the adjustment period. And as an ophthalmologist who is trying to get people out of glasses and off of eye drops, how do you actually guide them through that journey? And that's been my challenge. I, I don't know if you guys have had similar experiences. Yeah, I'm going to say that in my patient population, kind of a little bit of what you've all said that, you know, might be a little stinging that really has not been a barrier. I've had a few patients with a headache and then this sort of difficult to describe sensation. Some people call it being feeling dizzy, or I've heard somebody say it feels like they're in a movie or everything's pixelated, or there is a little neuroadaptive part that happens in the early experience. So I totally agree with you, Brian. It's not a one day, you know, trial really to get to have success, but there are patients and sometimes patients that surprise me because they're older than I think they would be to have a really great success who just love it and think it's life-changing for them. And there are other patients who think it's really great for certain circumstances, certain times that they want to be more glasses independent, but maybe not every single day. Um, and then there's patients who I think would be a slam dunk. They're younger patients. They don't have a great need for a lot of increase in their near vision and they just don't really respond. So I think we're still learning a lot about this drop. Coming back to you, Mitch, what, uh, who do you, do you have a special patient profile 
where you go, oh, this patient, I think they're really going to benefit from a, a pharmacologic treatment. Who, who would you say are your kind of go-to patient for that? Well, you know, certainly I think pretty much all early presbyopes are, are good candidates. I think the key is really I, I do look at what the total um, plus prescription is, so including their un, uncorrected refractive error if they're a hyperope uh, particularly. Um, I kind of want to know what their uncorrected um, plus uh, spherical equivalent is. And then I, I know that we can, in essence, treat patients for, let's say, up to about two diopters of, you know, two, two and a half diopters of total hyperopic correction. So, you know, if they're a low hyperope um, and they're young and we know that their presbyopic demand is, you know, in that range, then it's a drop I'm going to offer them. If they're a low myope, um, I can actually go a little further so they can be a little bit older like myself, you know, you know being about a minus 0.75 spherical equivalent. Um, and even though I'm a 225 ad, um, my effective ad is really 150 when I'm uncorrected. So therefore I fall in that range. So it's looking at the total refractive error, adding their uncorrected error as well as their presbyopic demand. And if you look at that number, I think as long as they fall under about two diopters, two and a half diopters max of total um, plus prescription, you're going to have happy patients. And I, I actually apply that principle not only to, to phacic patients, but to pseudophagic patients as well. So we have plenty of pseudophagic patients that we've operated on previously that didn't have options for, for presbyopic lens implants, um, or even those patients that, you know, couldn't necessarily afford a presbyopic implant or even patients that have presbyopic implants, we can actually utilize this drug. So it's it's been very interesting to kind of get a feel for all the different, you know, patients that we can actually treat with this medication. Yeah, I've had a similar experience as well. And I think that we're really finding out where those sweet spots are. And sometimes it's not the patient you expect. It's just sort of a hey, you know what, we have another tool, let's try this and really have a great result. So uh, I love hearing everybody's individual stories about that and how we can fit these drops in. Do any of you use it as a more of a, maybe a diagnostic thing, maybe in more complex corneas, or if you're thinking of other treatments you may use in the future, like a small aperture inlay or not inlay, but um, intraocular lens. Is there, do you think there's a role for it? Uh, with that as kind of diagnostically or predictive of how a patient might do with different technology like the small aperture ILL. There's a place for it uh, for aberrated corneas um, because we know with, you know, pinhole optics, you're uh, filtering out those peripherally scattered rays. And so when you bring down the pupil, you're able to create a much sharper image. And so patients who complained of long-term halos and glare after LASIK or those who may have corneal scars or keratoconus. Uh, those are definitely patients that would be ideal for a pupil modulating drop and potentially the IC8 uh, small aperture lens in the future. Um, I've used it mostly for my patients who've experienced kind of dysphotopsias, halos and glare after either LASIK or a multifocal lens. So I've tried the beauty in those cases. And um, I think it works well. I actually used to even use regular pilocarpine 1% for those patients who uh, just needed something to help them get through those, you know, bright lights from cars when they're driving at night. And I do feel like it has a good effect. And compared to generic pilo, I feel like it's much more tolerable. I don't have the same uh, 
proportion of patients complaining about headache. In fact, for me, headache hasn't really been a huge issue in the patients I've tried beauty on. Whereas with generic pilocarpine, headache was the main issue. And a lot of my patients just could not continue the treatment for that reason. Yeah, I get, I, I agree that I haven't seen a lot of patients with headache either. And I've had some real successes in patients with either dysphotopsias um, or patients who I just didn't think that they were getting the quality of vision because of a complex cornea that they might have had a couple real wins in that regard. Again, there's the duration of action um, issue that I think maybe some different uh, formulations coming out might have longer duration of action. So that's exciting to think that that might be on the horizon as well. Um, and any other pearls for using or trying these drops? Do you see any role uh, in that sort of thing for your patients as well, Steve, for instance? No, I mean, I think the main thing is diagnostic, but you know, when I look at these drops, um, uh, again, they're all temporary. And again, the measure for success is certainly what the patients think. But then yes. number two is what we think, do we think. And what I want from them is something that would be a bridge to keep patients in the practice from um, you know, the LASIK age to the cataract age from the 40s, 30s into uh, 60s, 70s. And I'm not sure that they are going to provide that. Um, I, I, I don't think that they're going to tie patients to the practice. I think they're more, you know, you prescribe them that the patient likes them, great. Uh, but then they'll probably go elsewhere that's easier to get the prescription for it. Or I, I, I just don't know if they have enough um, to do that to be the bridge procedure that I want. And what do you think? I'm sure you're seeing a lot of patients, particularly in your practice that have had LASIK and now coming back to you, uh, doing great at distance, but presbyopic and hoping that LASIK's going to really be that solution. Um, is, do you think that if you had a longer acting presbyopia correcting drop, you might be able to bridge the gap between this LASIK patient who's now presbyopic and a lens exchange procedure, or, or do you think you're still going to, you know, more quickly no, go to I, lens I exchange? I think you're right. No, I think you're right. I think, you know, a long acting would work, but uh, I, I mean, like long acting, like LASIK was long acting or right. uh, IOL is long acting. I, I just don't, um, there's been so many attempts for a, to have, you know, um, to, try to come up with something, but even when we look at all the different ways that they use radiotherapy and heat to reform the cornea, um, you know, those only lasted, I mean, those would last for a, several years, but they weren't successful. I, I'm just not sure it's going to pass a real world test as a temporary treatment. I, I think of it more as like a you know, a, a kind of a temporary, almost like a cosmetic um, use of it. So where someone uh, likes to go out maybe to dinner and, and see if they can not use the reading glasses as a temporary thing because they know that it doesn't last very long or uh, somebody who had, you know, as you said, Kathy, had LASIK and, and is looking for just a, a little more oomph at near 
um, at least for a short period of time, knowing that there is going to be a period of time where most likely they're into reading glasses or some sort of monovision between when they're LASIK, as they say, wears off and it's appropriate for a lens exchange. So I think that, you know, lens exchange, depending, of course, on the age of the patient and, and what their, the other comorbidities potentially of their eyes, uh, I think is a really nice way of addressing presbyopia. I kind of see it as a post-surgical adjunct too, as some of you have already mentioned, you know, in those patients who need a little oomph, like Audrey said, it's almost like a rescue drop, you know, those patients who've had a multifocal lens or a eat off lens and they're not getting as much near as they want or for those LASIK patients who uh, uh, maybe you don't wanna do, can't tolerate full monovision, but you could do a little mini mono plus the beauty. So it's almost like an adjunct with surgery where it gives you a little bit extra near and that little oomph. So I feel like there's gonna be more applications in sort of surgical eyes, even more so than virgin eyes in some cases. Yeah, I like that um, approach or thought process too. I have a, one of my happiest patients on beauty actually had crystallins and really just wanted more near. Um, and it actually improved her distance to some degree too. She had a little residual astigmatism. So I, I think you're right that a little extra oomph, even in those patients who are post-surgical, either with IOLs or LASIK, um, I think, or even monovision, as you suggested, it, it could be a, a great adjunct, especially as we have other formulations to look at in the future. We know there's a lot of other drops coming out on the market too. And uh, what do you think are going to be some of the differentiators between the different drop categories as they come out? What, how are we going to think about these drops once we have more than one uh, to offer? Well, you know, again, I, I think there's, there are multiple factors. So, you know, some of the medications that we're using so that, you know, we're, we're looking at drops, I think um, duration of action, I think is going to be a huge issue. So as we have some of the newer products available, um, that have longer duration of action. Um, I think that that will be a significant factor for patients because number one, nobody, nobody either wants to think about it or wants to have to worry about um, carrying bottles around or even carrying you know, disposable you know, drops around with them. And they don't wanna, also don't wanna go through a, a period where they're seeing well and then all of a sudden they're not seeing well and then they have to put another drop in to see well again. Um, so I do think duration of action is going to probably be the largest differentiator um, as the market matures. Um, do you think you know, uh, when I'm thinking about duration of action, sometimes I think, well, you know, there are going to be circumstances where patients want a shorter duration of action, too, because maybe they have to do something, you know, at night and they really do find a dimming effect um, if it's persistent. So I think you're right. I totally agree that that'll that'll be a differentiator. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great observation. You know, um, there are some patients, uh, I, you know, certainly when we first uh, got our hands on this drop and, you know, it, it was hard to come by and I was kind of giving it out like gold to uh, friends and things like that. Um, but hearing the feedback. So, you know, the patients that we see, we don't really get the feedback necessarily because we give them pers the prescription and we send them out and, and we don't, we may not see them for six months or a year, even it's, I don't bring the patients back to see how they're doing on, you know, on Puity. Um, however, um, my family members and friends and things like that, where I do see them on a regular basis, I've, I've been able to get feedback from them to kind of gauge some of them, you know, uh, definitely have, you know, experienced the dimming effect and don't feel real comfortable with it. Um, you know, and others like myself, I kind of noticed the dimming effect when I first put the drops in. 
but then it seems to go away. And I, I think my brain just kind of, I, you know, is okay with it. But more than that, I, you know, because when I don't wear glasses, when I'm driving at nighttime, I don't see that great. I mean, I, fortunately I have a electric vehicle with a really big, uh, you know, screen that allows me to kind of know where I'm at, but, you know, um, short of that, you know, actually looking at the streets and things like that, I, I do, do find it's a little bit more challenging because I can't see the license place or I, you know, things are, the street signs aren't as sharp, but when I use Vuity, even though I have a little dimming effect, everything else is so much, so much clearer that it kind of reminds me of when I had my LASIK originally. So I, you know, I definitely, um, I personally like that effect, but you know, I, I can certainly see that being an issue for some people who would kind of like it to wear off as they leave work as well. But let's shift gears a little bit. And since we have been talking about lens options, let's dive a little bit deeper into that as well. So many patients with presbyopia are good candidates for IOL surgery. And although our colleagues in Europe now have many more IOLs to choose from than we do here in the US, we can always look on and see what we may have in the future. Um, but even here, options are growing. We have lots of choices. So with the array of choices we have in the US and even what we know is on the near future, kind of some of the newer uh, approaches with monovision and maybe some monofocal plus and other solutions, uh, what, let's just go around uh, the whole table here and virtual table and see what your current go-to IOLs are for patients with presbyopia who really want that expanded range of vision. So we have lots of options. How about we're going to go in reverse order now. We'll start with you, Dagny, and tell us um, what's your go-to. Uh, so my go-to presbyopia correcting lenses would have to be the panoptics and the vividity. Um, oftentimes, sometimes mix and match. So I use the panoptics in the non-dominant eye and the vividity in the dominant eye. And I actually do that mix and match in the majority of my cases now. Um, and then the rest of my cases will either be bilateral panoptics or bilateral vividity, depending on their needs and the amount that they drive at night um, and, and different uh, features related to uh, their quality of vision at distance and nighttime mostly. So do you find that that uh, issue of glare and halos at night or the possibility of dysphotopsias is one of your driving factors for viewity versus a trifocal like panoptics? Or is it sometimes also early pathology within the eye or is it kind of both? Oh, it's definitely both. Vividity has filled a tremendous gap, I think, in, in all of our practices where we have patients who desire presbyopia correction, but they're not good candidates either because objectively they have mild pathology somewhere or they don't tolerate the halos and glare because they drive you know, very often at nighttime, like truck drivers. I have a lot of those patients. And so those patients, I may have previously done monovision with a monofocal lens, but now I have the Vividity lens in which I can just target plano or even do a mini mono to give them a little more near. And so it fills a very nice gap and it offers presbyopia correction to more patients than ever before. Um, and so I do do it for both of those reasons. And I find that combining it with the panoptics actually gives me the best of both worlds. Um, I presented at ASCRS this this year, my results on the mix and match panoptics and Vividity and found that the satisfaction was, you know, very high over 90%. And most patients were uh, spectacle independent, almost 90% were spectacle in independent completely, uh, including at near. And so it provides just enough near. And also they really don't notice the majority did not notice any dysphotopsias at night, which was actually 
uh, far better than I had expected and better than my data with bilateral panoptics. Awesome. That's great. How about you, Brian? Any difference in your approach? What are your sort of go-to IOL choices? I'm very interested in everything that Dagny just said there. That's it, it could shift my practice a little bit, but what I've found myself shifting to over the past couple of months is shifting away from diffractive technology. And I don't know if it's just specific to my patient population. I practice in an affluent area in the Philadelphia area, but the dysphotopsias are very real. And although most patients do adapt and feel completely fine about them, it only takes a couple before I see my own pattern shifting. And I've really been getting a lot of mileage out of Vividi lately. So that's undoubtedly my go-to presbyopia correcting lens, even though it's not gonna give the full range of spectacle independence. I find myself more comfortable knowing that this patient, even if they go on to develop some sort of retinopathy in the future, maculopathy, I know that that lens is still going to give them most of its benefit or its full benefit, rather than if they were to have a diffractive lens in their eye. The other thing that I have been doing to some success is in patients, particularly low myopes, who are so used to taking off their glasses, I've been doing bilateral vividity targeting minus one. And with targeting minus one, they're 2040-ish at distance and J1 up close. And before Vividi, we didn't really have the opportunity to do this with any extended depth of focus lens because there was just too much noise because there was at least some component of diffraction. But with Vividi, there's no, there's not that added noise because it's just the X-wave extended uh, range. It's not really true diffraction. So I have had a lot of good success with that. And patients are extremely happy. These low myopes who their whole lives walk around the house without glasses anyway, and they're used to that distance blur and just popping on a pair of distance classes. So I've really shifted to focusing on the near even more than the distance sometimes. I think that's very interesting. In those patients, I would consider, you know, being closer to Plano in their dominant eye. So I think it's interesting that they, that they tolerate that well and that that strategy has worked so well for you. So um, I think it's really very, very informative for us to hear how we're all sort of integrating things. So um, Audrey, go ahead and tell us what are your IOL choices and how do you decide uh, what to offer patients? Sure. I use a number of different IOLs, and I really like to match the technology for each patient. Uh, for example, I pay close attention to the uh, higher order aberrations. And if someone has significant higher order aberrations, then they are not going to be a candidate for a multifocal type IOL. I would consider putting in a Vividi in that patient. And so I have had a lot of success with those patients with Vividi and I target a mini monovision. I target about a minus a quarter in the dominant eye and about a minus a half in the non-dominant eye. Uh, if somebody's higher order aberrations are you know minimal, uh, then I will do a, either a panoptics or a um, the synergy IOL. I find that the synergy, although there is glare and halos there as there is with the panoptics, it gives a little more pop at near than the panoptics. And so for again, I have a discussion with the patient and really 
discover what it is that they want to do and need to do. And if, for example, I have a, a few lawyers who really wanted a, a lot more pop at near, they understood that they would have glare and halos at night. And actually, one of my, my husband's friends, who's a lawyer, says that everyone looks like an angel at night, right, because of the halos, <laughs> but, uh, but that he, he loves being glasses independent. Uh, I also use the LAL. And for anybody who's had previous LASIK, or RK. My go-to lens right now is the light adjustable lens. Uh, Again, targeting a little bit of mini mono vision and, you know, it is adjustable. You've got essentially four shots on goal there. And I find that patients are are very, very happy there with a light adjustable lens uh, because you are getting that uh, extended depth of focus. And so for me, I don't just have, you know, one lens. I also, as Dagny uh, does, I also do some mix and match. I actually did a couple of cases today where they had a panoptics in one eye and I I put in a divity in their other eye. Uh, And so I, I, I really use all of the different technologies and I try to make it uh, the correct technology matching it for each patient. Yeah, I love that we have so many choices so we can really, you know, drill down even after the first eye is implanted with one lens, we can assess how the patient's responding and what their residual refractive needs are or where they're still seeing a deficit and fill in the blank, so to speak, with technology with their other eye. And we're going to come back to light adjustable lens, but I first want to hear from Steve. What are, what are you doing in your practice? Well, love the different choices. And that's really become our job, hasn't it? To Mm -hmm. figure out which lens for which patient. Uh, Panoptics is what we use the most. I am very excited about the results with panoptics. We used, it's also fascinating how different opinions we have. We used a lot of vivities and we don't anymore because we were taking them out. It's not the number of good cases, it's the number of bad cases. And our explant rate with Vivity uh, was just too high. We use um, second most, we'll use LALs and all the good things that have been said about them, uh, I agree with, they're uh, so powerful. The, what I wish we had was a better lens for people that maybe have a little bit of, you know, the hyperoptic LASIKs, maybe a little bit of compromise in their corneas. I thought the symphony was terrific for that. They're coming out with a new symphony that we're going to be using soon. And I hope that will work. But two or three years ago, one of my friends in Europe said, when we were all using restores and bifocals, he said, you know, we just threw all those out. And now we use trifocals and that's what we've done. Um, Amazing what wonderful choices we have. What's your go-to, Mitch, for that? Well, thanks, Kathy. And uh, it's really interesting to hear everybody's perspective here. Um, You know, so for me, I I do look at a lot of different factors when I'm I'm treating a patient uh, with presbyopia. I mean, aside from the fact that we're obviously concerned about whether or not they may have uh, discussing the potentials for night vision, glare and halos, things like that. I kind of want to know um, from the patient's perspective, what type of near work they do, you know, what, you know, do they actually, uh, where do they like to hold things? Do they hold things really close um, or do, or are they basically holding things at arm's length? Are they predominantly just really looking at their phone and iPads and computers? 
um, or do they sit and read print? I mean, those are real factors in, in the decision-making process as far as what I'm going to talk to a patient about. But those aren't the only factors. Yeah. Do, you, do you use a, sorry to interrupt you, but do you use a questionnaire to kind of get to that ahead of speaking to the patient? Or is that all just part of your conversation? Uh, we do. So we actually um, have Veracity. And so Veracity has a built-in questionnaire that we, every single pre-op actually goes through the questionnaire that we have in Veracity. So it kind of gives us a, a starting point to discuss with patients. Um, but, you know, one thing I, again, with questionnaires, I don't really, a questionnaire, I don't have it saying, where do you hold things? I kind of want a patient to show me where they hold things. You know, so that that's, you know, a major factor. Obviously, our questionnaires discuss, you know, do you care about have, if you're going to have glare and halos at night? Do you, you know, is it more important to see, you know, distance uh, and intermediate or, or do you really, really want to have distance intermediate and near? I mean, those are all things that the that the um, that the questionnaires help us with, but they don't answer all of our questions, obviously. And they don't tell us some of the anatomical considerations that are important. And, and for me, um, you know, having been a proponent of really understanding the anatomy of the eye and understanding the visual pathway, um, some of the things I've, I've identified over the last 10 years or so as we've been involved with presbyopia surgery um, has been really looking at um, not only just what a patient wants to be able to see, but we look at other factors like their line of sight. Um, we look at the, you know, the, um, we use an eye trace. Uh, the eye trace allows us to measure what's called angle alpha D, which is basically a, a difference between the patient's line of sight and the center of the eye, i.e. where the lens is going to wind up after surgery. Um, I think what a lot of us experienced early when we started presbyopic surgery was we would place a lens where we thought, you know, the patient's line of sight is by asking them to look at the, you know, looking at the light and, and basically lining up based on the visual access. But postoperatively, what our experience was that those lenses don't always wind up at that spot and, and we have decentrations. And so patients wind up looking not through the center of the lens. So I've been very particular when I look at patients and it's more common in patients that start off as hyperopes. Um, they tend to have a larger angle kappa and um, several ways that people can look at that if they don't have an eye trace. They, you know, if you have an IOL master 700, um, you can just look at the printouts and see you know, if the patient's, you know, line of sight is close to the nasal aspect of the pupil, that's really a telltale sign um, for, hey, watch out kind of thing. Um, so, you know, so it's looking at all those factors for me um, in my decision making process um, that's kind of helping to avoid having problems or unhappy patients postoperatively. So let's say all of those factors, a patient, you know, tells you, they like to hold things close. They want to see things at distance. They're really active. They want all the ranges of vision that they can reasonably have. They have a healthy eye, you know, their line of sight and the center of their eye all lines up perfectly on their preoperative assessment and everything looks good. So in that case, what's your go-to technology? How do you approach those patients? My go-to technology um, in the dominant eye right now is actually the Symphony OptiBlue lens. Um, so it's a J and J lens. That's it's the, the symphony lens was a good lens before. Um, but we had a lot of complaints about, uh, glare and halos or spider webs, um, things like that for patients. Um, and then not necessarily getting all the near demand that we we're expecting. However, 
um, they've made some modifications to Lens. So the whole, they've kind of revamped their whole platform and put a violet blocker that's really helped uh, to eliminate those complaints that we were having previously with uh, glare, halos, spider webs. They've just disappeared completely. In addition, they've modified the haptics. So one of the issues that we had previously was the toric patients where the lenses were rotating on us. And patients were, um, you know, looking good at day one, but they would come back three months later and all of a sudden their vision had deteriorated and the lens rotated 40 degrees. Um, that's not happening anymore. These lenses, the new haptic design has really eliminated that process. Um, and what I like about the lens, you know, relative to the trifocal lenses, which I still do use, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what I like about the lens is really there's very little light loss at nighttime. So the patients have high contrast, they have good night vision. Um, which I think is something we have to counsel our patients when we use trifocal lenses um, about is that there definitely are some issues with night vision uh, and loss of light. Um, you know, when we, when we look at the uh, panoptics lens, which I also use, um, I do kind of, I am a little bit more cautious about the patients who are driving at nighttime uh, with the lens. Um, it's not that I don't use it. I definitely do use it, but I tend to, um, tend to kind of like when I was doing multifocals, I tend to prefer those lenses for patients that are maybe not necessarily doing as much um, night driving, but, uh, but do have this near demand where they really like to hold things a little bit closer and want that kind of seamless vision from 14 inches, you know, through the range of vision. Um, you know, so with the symphony lens, what I do is I, I will place that in their dominant eye and see where they wind up postoperatively. The majority of patients are actually very, very happy with the range of vision that they achieve with that lens. However, if they don't achieve the range that they're desiring in their non-dominant eye, I still now have options um, for giving them more near. So I can actually um, go to either the low, the sort of medium ad uh, technus uh, multifocal lens, um, or I'll even consider a synergy lens uh, in their non-dominant eye. I think, you know, one of my discouraging points with the Synergy lens was just the real tight um, landing zone that the lens has. And if you're off by plus or minus a quarter, um, it's a very unforgiving lens and the patients are complaining. However, as a second eye or non-dominant eye lens where I have the experience from the first eye and I can actually fine tune based on that, that experience and really now be able to account for effective lens position a little bit more accurately, um, I will then go to a synergy in the second eye, um, which will give them that same range. Um, and it has the same, you know, it's built on the same platform. Uh, it's it's kind of similar to patient, you know, I would say a lot of my colleagues that are on the panel here who are using Vividi and Panoptics in the same kind of um, mix. Um, but for me, I just find that the Near results are better with uh, Symphony than Vividi in my hands, anyways. Um, and you know, and then I don't really want to kind of mix platforms. I kind of want to stay within the same platform if I'm going to look for more near. And and so I can go with Synergy um, or you know or the Technus Multifocal, one or the other. Do you ever offset Symphony uh, a little bit to give you a little more near? Yeah. So if they're generally happy, I mean, I don't want to offset too much, but I, you know, the, the dominant eye definitely go plano to minus a quarter. Um, but for the non-dominant eye, I will just like I will with certain monofocal lenses, I'll go minus a quarter to minus a half. 
I mean, I think with any of these lenses, if we're off more than minus eight, the nice thing is this does have a little bit bigger sweet spot. Um, so you can go to minus a half, I, you know, but just like everything else, I think if you try to push it too far, you go to minus three quarters, you're not going to be happy. I mean, I, I, and I, and again, I've experienced that with Vividi as well. So, you know, I think that the, the range is really, you know, we can push it minus a quarter, minus a half. And, and I'll be honest with you, I have a lot of patients when I do that, that, that are 2020 distance and J1. Those patients, I, I will consider panoptics. Yeah. And I totally agree too, that the light adjustable lens has been really a game changer, especially in patients where we can't get good biometry preoperatively, or maybe they've had more complicated corneal surgery in the past or their RK. Um, and it's been really great. And I'm, I've been impressed with what range of near vision they get while they refract to very little myopia. So they definitely get an EDUF like effect, uh, with the treatment and it's, you know, it's a lot more work I find, uh, because there is that post-operative period where you feel like, oh, we're done and you're not, but the end result is a lot of precision and really fine tuning, uh, the result, walking the patient through it so that they get to see you know, where, where they are currently, and you can make adjustments for the future. Um, I've been very happy with uh, LAL. I think I'm getting more comfortable, especially since um, they added the active shield uh, last summer. I mean, one of the issues that we had early were some late changes with the lens, but since, since the development of active shield or the release of active shield, we've had a great experience. Patients, you know, with comfort, I can say patients don't have to wear the UV glasses all the time. They, you know, I do have them wear them outdoors, you know, in sunny situations, but indoors, I don't ask them to wear them and I don't ask them to wear them 24 seven. Um, you know, what I find with the LAL, I'm using it in several scenarios more regularly. So patients who've done previous monovision, um, I think it's a great, great, great technology because we can play with it, um, you know, different from monofocal IOLs. Um, I think in my post-refractive patients, when they're asking for accuracy and effectiveness, I say, this is look, this is the best lens. I, I said, just like when you had LASIK, this is the lens that I can correct, you know, as accurately as possible and with better results than I can do with any other lens. Um, so I think that that's another place. I mean, I'm really having a great experience with it, with RK patients, post-RK patients. Um, but you know, definitely with my, my post-LASIK patients as well. Um, and then any, you know, um, patients that don't want night vision aberrations, um, we do have, you know, a with the negative spherical aberration or what we're doing with these lenses is we're um, starting, we're, we're actually steepening the center of the lens traditionally. So we're getting a little bit of a multifocal effect with that on these lenses. And that's how patients get more range of vision. And, you know, I, and I think that that's been a, a really great experience for patients. You did kind of touch on this, Steve, too, you know, having other options that help with more complicated patients. So I know we now have on the horizon, the small aperture IOL, like the IC8. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Anybody would like to comment on where they think that's going to fit in their practice? I'm super excited about it for my patients with previous RK, or I have a a large thriving cornea practice. And, and I'd say there's a number of patients who could absolutely benefit from the technology who have these, you know, aberrated corneas. I know that the studies were done with, you know, so-called normal patients and, and they get a, 
you know, also a eat off effect there as well. Um, however, where I, I see it most useful is, is with the more aberrated corneas. I agree with Audrey. I'm probably going to start there as well with my aberrated corneas, post-RK, keratoconus, corneal scars. I've seen a lot of good data from our colleagues overseas showing pretty significant improvement in the best corrected vision after the IC8 lens uh, because they're decreasing those higher order aberrations. Um, but it is a nice lens because you kind of get to hit two birds with one stone. You get the you know improvement in, in the, of the image quality in these aberrated corneas, but you also get that extended um, depth of focus. And so it's sort of like you're offering almost a presbyopia correction to these aberrated eyes that you otherwise would not have ever been able to offer unless you did full on uh, monovision. And I know a lot of colleagues uh, have been using it for that purpose as well. And I think they will place it either in both eyes or perhaps only the non-dominant eye and aim a little bit uh, mini mono, like a one and a quarter or so in the non-dominant eye. I have heard that you can get some dimness if you place it in both eyes. So that is one thing that I'm going to look forward to counseling my patients on. So interestingly enough, I've you know had several patients that have been waiting, waiting, waiting for the lens. Um, and you know we keep getting told it's going to be here now. Hopefully it looks like the fall. Um, but I had a patient recently that uh, couldn't wait. Uh, she was post-RK with some irregularities. And she actually went to Europe to one of our colleagues um, and wound up having surgery. And, and they actually put, put an, an IC8 in one eye and an LAL in the other eye. Um, and, you know, it is, I, I was actually kind of impressed with the results in the IC8. So I actually have a patient with an IC8, not done by me, but um, I did, I, I do have her and I'm monitoring her. And it's really amazing at the effect that it can have um, in reducing aberrations in patients that have irregular corneas, um, as well as uh, extending depth of focus by having that small aperture. So I do see this as a, as a lens that's going to find a place. Um, in my practice, for sure, um, because I do see a lot of um, irregular corneas and things like that. Yeah, I think that, that one of the interesting things to me is when we have a refractive target that's labile, like a post-RK patient, is that you do get this refractive forgiveness, both for up to a diopter and a quarter of astigmatism and even a diopter of refractive error on either side of Plano. And so if you think that things are moving throughout the day a little bit, and that's a moving target, something that has that added forgiveness throughout the day while still giving some increase in depth of focus with a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit of myopic offset to begin with, I think there can't be a better solution uh, for patients who have something that's moving throughout the day, like an RK patient. And, you know, and even the patients that don't have irregular corneas, I think that extended depth of field that the lens offers um, may be a choice for the patients um, that we don't necessarily want to do a lot of monovision, but by, you know, by using this lens, we can get them more range of vision, you know, just targeting distance or slightly off distance um, without having to create a lot of night vision issues. Yeah. And the small aperture also gives some refractive forgiveness too, both for the Spherical yeah, equivalent and residual stigmatism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is really a, a cool aspect of it too. In the patient, since you're you're you know one unique amongst us, uh, Mitch, and having experience with this uh, with your patient, did the patient notice that there was some dimming on the side with the IC8 uh, compared to their LALI, or no comment on that? 
you know, well, so it's kind of early. So the patient recently had surgery. Um, and I still actually, I'm going to have to do the light adjustments for the patient on their, on the eye that had the, the LAL. So she's not seeing as well. So she's actually seeing better with the IC8 lens right now than the LAL lens. And she's just so happy because of the fact that, you know, there was really very limited options for her. I mean, there was nothing that was going to give her perfect vision. And, you know, really her goal was to be able to drive and she does not absolutely does not want to wear contact lenses. So even though she doesn't have a perfect refraction, um, it's really eliminated weight. You know, she had, I'm going to say four to seven diopters of astigmatism in her corneas. Um, that IC8 lens is manifesting right now at uh, plus a quarter minus 125. And she's very happy with that. It's not, it's not your traditional thought process, you know, necessarily. I mean, these patients that really have irregular corneas, if you can, if you can el eliminate the majority of their aberration, most of them are going to be happy because you wouldn't have achieved it with another lens. Yeah, absolutely. And might be able to get them out of something else they might need, like a scleral lens or, or other solutions. Uh, any pointers? And Brian, I'm going to ask you, do you have any pointers for surgeons who haven't really jumped in to presbyopia correcting IOLs, anything you would say that might be, uh, you know, maybe an easier place to start or reassurance that they have with today's technology? If so many options available to us, and one of those options is going to work for at least somebody. So having lenses like the Vividi lens that are non-diffractive, so you can avoid the conversation of glare and halos, or if your practice has access to light adjustable lens, these lenses are really low hanging fruit because they're almost a lens you could put in just about anybody. Now it's harder to jump into the world of diffractive technology because you do need to have great preoperative and postoperative support for these patients. You need to have the ability to fine tune them. So if you don't have that ability, start simpler, start with the Vividi lens and start doing a little bit of mini monovision. The patients that you otherwise would have done a full monovision, do a mini monovision with the Vividi. It's really quite, quite easy and quite rewarding to get involved with these types of lenses. Number one, ocular surface management is a huge component of all this. So I think that you have to, if you want to be successful with presbyopic lenses, the first thing you have to do is make sure that the ocular surface looks good before you do surgery. Um, that, that kind of goes without saying. And I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't look at the ocular surface um, critically beforehand. So just staining with fluorescein, looking at, you know, tear film function, um, you know, those are kind of the critical things that we do um, to even make a decision. We you want to do that before pre-op. So you want to, you know, do that and assess the patient and, and not, not, uh, not be afraid to tell a patient uh, that is coming in this, you know, like for a pre-op visit and you really really is motivated, um, I think it's important to kind of sometimes delay surgery and make sure that we um, resolve that problem first, um, you know, for, you know, to keep happy patients. Because obviously the concern is you don't want unhappy patients. And, you, you know, when you have unhappy patients, they take more chair time, the staff starts to get discouraged and the doctor <laughs> gets discouraged and, and may sometimes think it's the technology. It's not necessarily the technology. Um, I think for those that haven't gotten started yet, um, Starting with extended depth of focus lenses is, is definitely a way to go um, to you have larger sweet spot with the extended depth of focus lenses, um, less, you know, visual aberration. So I think that that's a fair way to to get you know your feet wet um, as you move into the presbyopic uh, realm, I would say. 
uh, for trifocal lenses, you know, and the multifocal lenses, I definitely think that um, you want to have experience and you, you have to know your, your refractive results with your lenses. Um, you have to be consistent. Um, and you also have to um, be ready to enhance um, patients as necessary. So that's got to be a, a, a part of it. Yes. Yeah. I think that those are good pearls and, uh, and I would encourage people as well to really try it because I have to say my presbyopia correcting IOL patients are really some of my happiest patients. They have their vision back, a uh, youthful vision, as I've heard patients even today saying, you know, that they never expected. They didn't think that that would be a possibility later in their life. And it's, I feel like we give this great gift to patients um, that is something that is an additive thing in their in their years when they thought that there was no solution such as that. So definitely give it a try. So we're going to shift gears. And instead of talking about drops or IOLs, what we're going to talk about now is LVC, laser vision correction. We have a number of different possibilities from LASIK to PRK to SMILE. And so how are you deciding what the best option is for patients? And first of all, I know uh, we each offer different things. So Mitch, what are you offering patients for laser vision correction? Um, so I don't have smile as an option for my patients currently. Um, I do do LASIK and PRK. Um, and my decisions uh, for LASIK and PRK really, uh, I'm going to say primarily are, you know, based on uh, is the patient pseudophagic uh, or, or phagic? So, you know, I, I do actually do some pseudophagic presbyopia correction with, uh, with LASIK for those patients that have had prior surgery and want to have uh, some near. Um, so we certainly have done that, but those patients I'll, I'll tend to do a little bit more PRK. Um, you know, for LASIK uh, in the, you know, my LASIK uh, range for doing uh, presbyopia is really gonna be up to about 55 years old. So the, you know, the 40 to 55 year olds, um, we do talk to them a little bit about um, about extending their range and doing some presbyopia or, or near correction in one eye um, to enhance their their overall range of vision and really reduce their need for glasses. So we have had corneal inlays in the past and we don't really have those uh, available anymore, but there are allergenic inlays that are on the horizon and look really promising, I think. But what are your thoughts on uh, inlays, corneal inlays in the future? So I, I was actually involved with a lot of the early technology with corneal inlays. I actually did a lot of the original animal work for uh, revision optics, which um, which we had the raindrop lens. And uh, it was exciting technology early on. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, what happened with the lenses is that we did because it was a synthetic lens, the cornea just doesn't like synthetic objects. Um, and the lens required having some high, it, it did have a water content. And unfortunately, the endothelium wants to pull water through the lens, uh, through the cornea. So the lenses tended to dehydrate and you would get some rolling and some haze along the edges. So unfortunately, the, the technology failed. However, um, for those patients that uh, actually still have the lenses, um, they, you know, they definitely were happy. It was really interesting to see the effects of having that central um, steepening of the cornea and their ability to develop, you know, near vision, you know, in the J1, J2 range. Um, 
And so I, I'm actually kind of, I, I've, I've been waiting to see the Alatech product, um, you know, come to market because I do think that, you know, the, the concept works. Uh, we know that it works. It's reversible. Um, and as, and using natural human tissue, you know, the likelihood of having a problem is, is being reduced. So I, I'm, you know, very optimistic about the ability to offer that again as an option for patients. Any thoughts on new technologies that may be available in the future, such as laser to the sclera? Yeah. What, what are your thoughts? You know, so again, I was, I was involved early on with the scleral expansion devices as well, which was something that we did, you know, 20 something years ago. Um, you know, and I have some patients that swear by it, you know, so expanding the space around the lens, I think is a potential option. Unfortunately, eventually the lens gets too thick to work, you know, so it, it's something that can, you know, that, that can offer, um, a period of time. The patients will be able to extend their, you know, length of time without glasses per se. I think, you know, kind of the same principles as lens softening, uh, drops that will become available hopefully as well. Um, the scleral, you know, but, but I think laser, you know, laser, um, scleral treatment will have a place probably in the, you know, in the kind of, um, mid to moderate, uh, presbyopes, um, but probably not so much in the later presbyopes. So we only have a few more minutes and I just wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the lifetime of the patient with presbyopia. So I think that, you know, at least in my thinking today, I, I try to think of what is the series of progression of disease and maybe the series of treatments that I can fit together, like unique puzzle based on the individual patient sitting there in front of me, their expectations, their ocular health, their age at the first time they present and all the tools that we have. So any thoughts on for presbyopia, with all the strategies we have from LASIK to drops to refractive lens exchange to cataract surgery uh, to enhancement of cataract surgery. What are your thoughts now as you look at the lifetime view of the patient? And I'm gonna have Steve uh, start with that. Well, presbyopia is, um, you know, it's sort of like our most common thing that we will face to fix. Everybody will have it. And it's really where we have perhaps our uh, least options um, that work as well as what we can do with LASIK. We don't get LASIK results. We don't uh, get regular cataract results. So it's a bit of a challenge. Now we have so many more new treatments. Uh, it's wonderful that I think perhaps for the first time, we can span the experience of a patient going through presbyopia. Um, if the key is a bridge procedure, the key is to avoid um, exchanges or explants, and the key is that whatever we do in the first one or two, I'm thinking three procedures, whatever we do in the first one or two procedures to have it be as compatible as possible with what we're going to do in the future. Yeah, fit them all together with the big picture in mind, right? Right. So is, is there anything on the horizon? I know you were saying maybe presbyopia drops isn't going to be the perfect bridge for you. Is there something else 
in development or on the horizon that you think might fill that role of a bridge treatment uh, better or differently than drops? There, there's some candidates. I mean, one candidate is obvious, uh, aggressive RLE, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just bringing that, which has good results, that procedure down into the, to meet LASIK. I mean, LASIK, monovision is a wonderful procedure. Multifocal LASIK is not. So that's one effect. A inlay that is biocompatible is um, another option. I mean, the, the inlays that we had that passed the FDA didn't fail because of their results visually. They failed because of their biocompatibility. Okay. A, um, you know, a, a drop, and this is not going to happen, but a, a very long acting uh, drop. Um, so, you know, it, it, we may wind up, it, it looks like three procedures, but uh, over lifetime, maybe we'll wind up with stretching LASIK and stretching, stretching LASIK up and stretching RLE down. How about Audrey? What about you as you're looking at your patient selection right now? How are you fitting the puzzles together and what would be, you know, your thoughts on the future? I think that a lot of it really is some education, uh, at least for those sort of pre-presbyopic slash early presbyopic myopes um, that I'm doing a smile or LASIK on and, you know, trying to uh, educate them and, and then offering them a presbyopic drop. I mean, as we discussed, it's, it's not perfect, uh, but at least for, for the moment, you know, as, as Steve said, we're, we're trying to increase the, the range of your, you know, laser vision correction, smile or, or LASIK, and then decrease maybe where you're going to be starting your uh, refractive lens exchange options. Of course, we want to be cognizant of some of the other issues such as uh, retinal detachment and high myopes. And so for the RLE um, group, you know, you, you do want to calculate that as a, as a risk, um, as well as some, you know, some potential I would say mild concern uh, about whether some of these presbyopic drops that have pilocarpine in it um, can also uh, potentiate that. Again, not proven, just a few case reports and, and unclear whether this is related, but I think it's, it's wise just to, to give pause to that um, as we are pushing the limits of, you know, of both perhaps. Those are, those are great points that nothing comes without a potential you know, risks and benefits that we weigh for each patient based on their individual needs and their individual eye health as well. So you never lose sight of that either. Um, how about uh, Brian? What, what's your approach uh, with the spectrum of options and anything you're excited about in the future? I definitely start the journey trying to see if the patient who's coming to me for laser vision correction at 39, 40, 41, I try and see if they'll tolerate a little tiny bit of an offset. And if they can tolerate even just the minus 50 in the non-dominant eye or even up to minus 75 at age 40, I'll try and push them there because I know they'll be happier as long as possible. While I love RLE, I think that these are some of the happiest patients I have. I also have a portion of my practice devoted to secondary IOLs. And every time I'm doing an RLE on somebody who's a little too young or a little on the younger side, 
I think about the longevity of that lens in the eye. And I think, and I hope the majority of those lenses will stay put for a lifetime. But I also see patients 20, 30 years after cataract surgery and their lens is dangling. So I worry about that a little bit. So having a bridge to get them to the point where they are ready for officially cataract surgery would be really nice. And I don't know what that bridge looks like. Looks like, And maybe it is pharmacologic, but in a sustained drug delivery form. Perhaps we enter the world of intracameral administration of a long-term myotic or intracanalicular administration of that, or even just a contact lens. So I think that those things are all possibilities as the world of sustained drug delivery continues. And I hope that in the future, you and I, Kathy, are not handling a million dislocated IOLs. <laughs> when you're saying that, I was just thinking about my clinic that's always full of dislocated IOLs too. <laughs> need to find better solutions for them. We'll work on that. <laughs> One nice thing is the presbyopic drops that we now have available to us um, is going to sort of pre-identify patients that um, want to have refractive IOLs. So we're conditioning them already. Um, if they're willing to um, spend the money, you know, $1,000 a year on eye drops, um, they're likely willing to um, have refractive you know, lens correction as well, or, or going to want refractive lens correction as well, um, because they've already identified themselves as it's important to them to not wear glasses. Um, so, you know, I think starting at eight, you know, at the, that early presbyope and, and offering, you know, presbyopic eye drops is the first place to start because, you know, that's going to obviously, it's going to number one, build, um, it's going to build part of your practice that's looking for presbyopia correction early. Um, and may not necessarily, there may not, you know, at this point, we may just not have the right presbyopic treatment for them. And so this kind of delays that, that, um, that need, but certainly as things like uh, inlays become available where we don't have to be as aggressive and go into the inside the eye, I think that, that you know, that's certainly going to be the starting point. Um, presbyopic inlays and laser, like you said, is going to be the next phase. It's going to be for the early, you know, the, the, the presbyops that are 45 to 55 that, you know, don't really have lens changes. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm always hesitant to do refractive lensectomy, certainly um, in myops or patients that haven't had uh, prior PVDs or, or we don't see any you know, vitreous attachment where, you know, we certainly could potentially cause a problem um, if we operate on them too early. So I think that that's going to be kind of the second range um, for patients. And then, you know, then obviously we start to get into our lens-based procedures, I think, for patients. That's great. And I think the presbyopia is an opportunity to create a relationship early on with patients who we may not have seen prior uh, to let them know that we're there listening, caring about their needs, coming up with solutions that work for them for their different phases of life. And then hopefully, you know, encouraging them, their family members and friends uh, to become future patients in the practice. And then lastly, something we didn't even talk about, but is also on the horizon is the ability to adjust lenses that are already in the eye. So refractive lens indexing. I mean, I think that that's going to be something we don't have that capacity right now, but I think five, 10 years from now, I think we will see that as, as part of the armamentarium that we have to offer patients. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for that as well. So, uh, and last, but very much not least, Dagny, tell us uh, your approach and, and what you're excited about. Yeah, I see myself as the patient's presbyopia physician 
over their lifetime, <laughs> or at least once presbyopia onsets, um, because I'm not their beauty doctor, I'm not their panoptics doctor, I really am their presbyopia physician, and I'm choosing the best technologies for them at that period of their life. So um, early on, I think we're all trying to preserve their lens. So if their lens has partial accommodation, we don't want to replace it. We want to keep it there. And I think there are a lot of modalities that we have now that allow us to prolong the patient's you know, natural lens. So for example, presbyopia drops, um, the corneal inlays with allo allogeneic um, options, as well as even an, uh, a phacic IOL that perhaps has some extended depth of focus or some sort of presbyopia correcting properties. I'm very excited about that. Um, and even within the presbyopia uh, drops category, I think there's a lot of innovation still to be done there. We've only seen one candidate so far, beauty uh, of the many candidates coming down the line, some of which are also pilocarpine based and some of which also work on the pupil but are not pilocarpine based. And then some which even work on the lens itself and softening the lens. So I'm very excited to see what will become of those options and how we can help those patients. Um, I do do a large amount of RLEs in my practice and they're very happy, but I always try to preserve their natural lens um, because nothing beats mother nature you know, whenever possible. <laughs> we all we want to be 20 again natural. with a perfect lens, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I think we're acting as their bridge to, to more definitive lens surgery, lens-based surgery. I think, you know, it's nice that we're, we're practicing in this time where there are more options uh, before that more permanent solution. Well, this was a great discussion, and I think we all learned something that we can take back to our clinics and improve the way that we approach presbyopia correction. I want to really personally thank everybody on the panel, Brian Schaefer, Mitch Schultz, Steve Slade, Audrey Tally Rostov, and Dagny Zhu for sharing their thoughts with us today. Thank you all. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.